This is the voice of the Report of the Week, signing on. Well, hello, ladies, gentlemen, and everyone listening in to this newest podcast of VORW International, the voice of the Report of the Week. This program is premiering Thursday, the 1st of June, 2023. Hope to have a new show to start off a new month, June of 2023. Hope everyone out there tuned in is feeling and doing all right. Before we get into the show, first and foremost, a few minor announcements. If you are watching this program on YouTube, please turn your attention to the video and perhaps the description thereof. There are two pieces of fan art that I would like to premiere in this program. The first piece, credit given to Roberto. The second piece of fan art is going out to Clifford and Douglas. More of their work can be found at redbubble.com slash people slash lost in time tease. If you're out there watching and listening to this broadcast and you are feeling artistically inclined and you would like to make a piece of fan art to be featured and showcased in the next program, here's how you can do it. First and foremost, what it's all about, be creative, have fun with it, make any piece of fan art you'd like, any style, any interpretation. The name of the game is just to have fun with it and exercise your creativity. If you would like to have it featured on this program, all you have to do is send it to me via email as an email attachment or upload it to an image hosting site and email me the link to the piece of fan art. I will download it and then feature it in the next show that I do. Most importantly, please let me know how you would like to be credited for your fan art. You went through the time and effort to create this piece of fan art. The very least I can do is give you the credit that you deserve. So again, please let me know how you would like to be credited. Be that by name, full name, name and location, an online name. If there is a website or social media profile you would like for me to credit, and or link so viewers and listeners can find more of your work if they like what they see, please let me know, and I will be happy to include those as well. If you do not include any information as to how you would like to be credited, you will be kept anonymous by default. So send me whatever fan art you would like, have fun with it, and just let me know how you would like to be credited. The way to send in a piece of fan art again is very simple. Just email it to the following email address. V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com Likewise, this I ask only once. You will not hear me mention this again for the rest of the program. 
This program is oftentimes demonetized because even though I try not to be controversial in nature, I sometimes will talk about things that perhaps the various algorithms may not be all that fond of. I like to do my show the way I want to do it, but as a result, I don't really like self-censoring, so sometimes these programs do not always appease the monetization gods, so sometimes they get demonetized. If you want to support this program, donations are always welcome via PayPal to V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com. You could also support the program at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the report of the week. If you sign up on Patreon, you could also hear my radio shows on demand. I do two hours worth of radio shows each and every week, every Saturday and Sunday. And those are completely distinct and separate from this podcast, but those can then be accessed on demand. At this point now, there's an archive of at least several hundred of those shows available for your listening pleasure on Patreon. Again, that's patreon.com slash the report of the week. And on a final note, we have a new sponsor for this program. So take a listen, and if this sounds interesting, make sure you check them out. Interested in a custom art piece? Whether you're looking to commemorate a special occasion, find the perfect gift for a loved one, or just fill that empty space on your wall, consider checking out Multimedia on Etsy. That's M-U-L-T-E-Y-E Media on Etsy.com. Multimedia's independent artist is open for commissions in a variety of styles and mediums, ranging from digital art and photo manipulation to traditional paintings, drawings, and collage. Browse the eclectic collection of pre-made designs or order a piece that's utterly unique and completely customizable by you. Some of the offerings at Multimedia include sketched or painted portraits of your beloved pet, personalized coloring pages for use at your upcoming special event, expressive stylized cartoon portraits, including some based on this very broadcast, custom collages with themes of your choosing, as well as vibrant poster prints, wall art, and phone cases for a touch of eccentricity in your home or in your pocket. Whether your idea is hyper-specific or you're looking to be surprised, all you have to do is send a message and our artist will be happy to work with you to create a custom listing that suits your needs. Pay a visit to Multimedia, that's M-U-L-T-E-Y-E, Media on Etsy. No spaces there. That again is M U L T E Y E M E D I A. Again on Etsy. Also available on Facebook under the same name. Now into the show we go. This introduction that you'll be hearing next was recorded several days ago. I didn't have all that much to talk about, so if the discussion seems a bit dry, Well, you've been warned. All right, let's get into it. So this show is going to be 
a whole lot slower paced, and I would say nowhere near as, at least by my definition, nowhere near as interesting as the previous program. The previous podcast, I should note, was not released on YouTube. It didn't go out there. And that was intentional. That was an intentional move by me. Not that I could really explain that move, because when I say, obviously, intentional, that gives the the implication that it was done for a purpose. There really wasn't any sort of calculation behind it. It's just I didn't... I don't know. I didn't have a good feeling about releasing that show on YouTube, so I didn't. It went out, though, on all the podcast platforms. And uh, anyway, if you haven't listened to that show, I would encourage you to do so. I would wager anyway, compared to this program that you're hearing right now, the difference would be night and day, in that the previous program was highly topical, It was really focused on two things, fast food and whether or not it's dying, as well as earthquake experiences. So it's very structured, at least compared to this. This, on the other hand, there's not too many emails to read. I'll certainly be getting to them a little later on. But other than that, what am I doing right now? I'm sitting here. I'm killing time. I'm not really talking about anything. I'm I'm talking, but am I actually saying anything? I wouldn't really say so. So anyway. I'm going to uh, go through some random stuff. Some random... Whatever you want to call it. Not really points of business, but just random topics, I guess. The YouTube channel, the other one, the report of the week, is doing good. The way the fast food realm is, and I'll talk about this because why not, I don't think this is one of those things that very many people really think much about. I think about it, of course, because this is what I do. I mean, this is, uh, you know, this is my, this is my thing. As far as fast food goes, it's very... There's a hierarchy, is what I'm trying to say. It's hierarchical. I mean that both in terms of quality, as well as in terms of interest. Now, as far as quality goes, I'll I'll give an example. Five Guys, generally speaking, has very good uh, quality items. Now, there's always going to be instances where sometimes there's going to be variances right from one location to the next. I remember back in 2016 using Five Guys as an example. There was a time where the local Five Guys just wasn't doing a good job. And that's when I kind of dropped them for a little bit. And 
Steak and Shake became my favorite fast food burger place. Now I kind of roll my eyes at that because, well, now the tables have once again turned. Steak and Shake is really disgusting at this point. It's the epitome of a chain in total decline, whereas Five Guys was a good example of what's essentially an outlier. When I, I gave this whole lecture back in 2016 about Steak and Shake, they're my favorite fast food place now, etc., etc. I would take that as a lesson not to jump the gun, because that's exactly what I did. I made a very, you know, seemingly absolute to say, this place is now my favorite establishment. That's a, that's a pretty strong thing to say. Right, especially when I review the food. You know, that that's a pretty strong thing. But to say that, and to make such an absolute judgment off of a singular experience at a local level, I think back to that now, I think that was stupid of me to do. I say now, in 2023, I'm not going to make those sorts of judgments onto an entire chain just based on one location. It was foolish of me to do that years back. So now, when I try to judge a chain, I try to just look at a lot of things. Multiple establishments that I've been to, what other people are saying, what sort of news coverage are they receiving? How are they doing business-wise, etc.? That's why, with Steak and Shake, for instance, now when I say that they're really going downhill, I mean it. I have been to probably six or seven different Steak and Shakes over the years. All of them are bad now. The food quality gets worse and worse. The reviews that I see for Steak and Shake get worse and worse, they're closing establishments, sales are plummeting. Yeah, that seems pretty uniform. Five Guys, on the other hand, is generally quite good. Now, are they pricey? Yeah, they are. You're not going to be able to get a burger from Five Guys for just five bucks or anything. Uh, for instance, you might wind up having to pay 25 bucks for a, a double burger. Obviously, it varies based on location, but... Will it be a good burger? Yeah, it might be an overpriced burger, but is it going to taste good? Yeah, odds are that it will. But anyway, that's not even what I really wanted to talk about. What I was just saying, so as far as there being a hierarchy, as far as quality goes, so you have these places that, when you're, when you're judging them broadly, because, see, that again is what I'm trying to say, I was not making a broader judgment. I was very... I was focused singularly on a single experience and then made a broad judgment therefrom. That's just a stupid thing to do. Now, that's a piece of advice that I will impart, not just in regards to fast food, but the world around you. You know, just look around you and try to average things together. A lot of people these days, it goes all ways, all directions. They take one experience and they make an absolute judgment. Resultantly, that's foolish. You know, there's certain things, there's times where, yeah, 
That initial judgment you, you made? Yeah, you were right on the money the whole time. But there are going to be those instances where that one experience, good or bad, like I said, it goes all ways, is an outlier. I believe now, in 2016, when I made that judgment on Steak and Shake and proclaimed them to be my favorite place, I realized now that was an outlier. The Steak and Shake experience that I was using primarily to back up that opinion, that was one restaurant. That was one establishment. That did not speak for the chain itself. And you want to know something? That Steak and Shake that I used as the basis for that entire argument, you want to know what happened to it? It closed, not even a year after it opened. And the even better part is in the year that it existed for, it went downhill so fast. So it was one of those establishments that it started off real good, and uh, then it just went, and uh, it all just went down the tubes. And you look at the reviews, they speak for themselves. Pretty sure I got food poisoning from this place. Never going here again. Trash and, and discarded food littered the floors. I've never seen such poor service. And those are all excerpts from separate reviews, and it just goes on and on and on. So, even the establishment that I made as the basis for that whole argument started off good, and they plummeted in quality. It was foolish of me to, uh, to say what I said back then. But anyway, that's inconsequential. So, I realize now just through experience, like I said, it's hierarchical. And, like, you have these places like Five Guys at the top. Uh, that are generally well-regarded. You know, they, yeah, they might be pricey, but is the food quality going to be generally good? Yeah. And, uh, you know, then you have places that are more or less toward the bottom, where it's like, to be a little controversial, Taco Bell. People either love them or they hate them, but I think you could say, realistically, even if you're a fan of Taco Bell, yeah, they have their fluctuations. And I think even the most ardent Taco Bell supporters essentially just have like one or two items on the menu that they really like. Now here's the thing. There are multiple hierarchies. So you have what I just described there, the quality hierarchy, which I think is very straightforward, right? The establishments at the top are the ones that have the best quality food, uh, the highest consistency, the best overall experience and product, etc. And the ones at the bottom are obviously the opposite. However, as far as social media and views and clicks and interest go, there is not necessarily a correlation between the establishments at the top of that hierarchy and those at the bottom, meaning the ones at the top of the highest quality may not be the establishments that would garner the most interest on social media, i.e. get more views if I do a review from them. So now you have a second hierarchy, the attention hierarchy. And from experience, what I've noticed is there are certain establishments, and then you could even make it more specific, certain items from certain establishments that are generally going to do better 
in the YouTube algorithm than others. There's a certain fast food chains that are more social media friendly uh, than others, for instance. I'll give an example. What I've noticed analytically is Wendy's, of all places, despite being a uh, well-known fast food chain, I would wager. I remember a couple years ago, I don't know if this is even a thing anymore, but you remember they had their, uh, their spicy Twitter account, Oh, the Wendy's uh, tweets are fire, or whatever they would say. And uh, they, I believe, anyway, they had a very sassy social media person. I don't know, like I said, if they even do that anymore. But despite all of that, the general interest, as far as Wendy's items is concerned, is minimal. It's like Wendy's exists. There's pretty much one in every town, but it's not a place that people really care all that much about. So, if I'm interested solely in views, Wendy's is not going to be one of those establishments that I'll necessarily put at the top of the list, because I know just not a lot of people really care. That's one example. On the flip side of the spectrum, I have noticed lately, there is an enormous amount of interest in KFC. And uh, that's actually fairly recent. That's kind of changed. There was a time where people didn't really care about KFC, but now, whenever I review something from KFC, it generates a lot of interest. Same thing generally as far as places like Little Caesars goes. There's a lot of interest in Little Caesars, but Papa John's? I wouldn't say there's terribly... Uh, a terribly large amount of interest. So you have these various hierarchies in terms of quality, then there's a separate one with totally separate results as far as interest. And then there's even certain types of items that do uh, better than others. For instance, certain types of burgers will generally do uh, all right. Certain chicken sandwiches will do all right. Pizzas, there's always interest in pizza. But tacos? Eh, depends. Not always. And the one thing that most people just don't give a damn about are those, uh... this whole latest trend that I've seen with both Pizza Hut and Papa John's, those, uh, melts. So the Pizza Hut melts and the Papadillas from Papa John's, people don't care about those in the slightest. Um, But, you know, it was just something to try. It was something to review. So it was, you know, it was worth giving them a shot eventually. But it's not one of those captivating, edge-of-your-seat subjects that people are just going to be waiting for. Most people aren't going to be sitting there thinking, oh my god, thank you, Review uh, for uh, for finally trying out the cheesesteak pizza melt from Pizza Hut. It's like, oh, all right, well... Yeah, all right, well, they released it, all right, woohoo. It's like there's really not a lot of interest. And um, what you generally have is you have these sorts of, of items that it's like, I could just tell people don't really care about them. Like I said, I'll, I'll still try it out eventually because it's something for me to do. But if there's another release that I think would be of a higher priority... 
I'm going to put that first. I'm going to get to that first and then save, you know, these sorts of melt things for like a rainy day because I just try to get an understanding what sort of items are topical? What do I get the requests for? What are, what, what are some of the things that people want to see reviewed, right? What are some things that might actually be helpful? You know, it's like, what's it going to be? This new chicken sandwich that I get a lot of requests to try out? Or is it going to be the pizza melt? It's like, well, I'm going to try out the chicken sandwich first. And then afterward, it's like, eh, if there's nothing else to do, yeah, what the heck? All right, we'll try out the pizza melt then. But I'm not going to drop everything to, to try that out, if that makes sense. Now, like I said, though, if there's something like an actual pizza released, that's different. And uh, the worst, though, I'll t you know, I'll tell you, the, the worst are things... And it's just frustrating because I could tell, obviously, that this is how people feel toward the chains in general. When you have an establishment that just brings back the same item again and again and again and again and again, and what do they do? They bring it back, and then they take it away, and then they bring it back again, and then they take it away again, and then they bring it back, and then they take it away. And it's like, for God's sake, just put it on the menu and keep it there. Because you could only do a certain gimmick a certain amount of times before it gets stale and boring and it's like, oh boy, yeah, boy, I bet they're going to keep this and it's going to go away and then they're going to put it there again and we're going to rinse and repeat. Same old, same old. And I'll give, a, I'll give an example. Taco Bell and their nacho fries. That, I would wager, is the best example at least in, uh, in recent times, I could possibly conjure. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'll actually cite some figures for you. And I know this might be very dry, but I'll tell you this, I have absolutely nothing else to talk about, so may as well, right? So, Taco Bell and their nacho fries. I've released them, or the, I misspoke, I've reviewed them, not released them. I've reviewed them, let's count, one, two, three, four, five times. I've done five different reviews for the exact same thing, some french fries from Taco Bell. And then if you want to include the items that incorporate the nacho fries, then you could uh, actually increase that to six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I've done ten reviews, at least of items that have the nacho fries characteristics. Five of those reviews are just for the fries themselves. This is, like I said, I cannot think of a better example of a stale gimmick. So we'll take you back to 2018 first and foremost. It's January of 2018, and Taco Bell makes an announcement. We are releasing french fries. Huh? French fries? Got people's interest. People don't really think of french fries and uh, Taco Bell, but it got people talking. Huh. 
Well, I wonder how these French fries would taste from uh, an establishment that doesn't really make French fries, you know? It's like, oh, well, I think they're either going to be really good or really bad. And Taco Bell went all in on the marketing. They promoted the hell out of these nacho fries. The interest was enormous, as was the demand. When I tried out the nacho fries, I remember this. I made sure to get it the day of the release and uh, get the review out ASAP because, you know, I could just kind of tell when there's so much tremendous interest in the item, right? Within a week of publishing the review, it had probably two million views. That's incredible. I think at the time, it was one of the most popular videos I had ever done. Are Taco Bell's nacho fries worth the hype? I think it even got to the top of YouTube's trending page because it was a trending subject. There was that genuine interest in the nacho fries. So, better yet, there's that interest. And then it turns out, oh, wait a minute. Huh, these fries are actually pretty good. And everyone loved them. Well, eventually, Taco Bell said, all right, all good things must come to an end. So they removed them from the menu. But... Fear not, said Taco Bell. They're going to be back. You just wait. They're coming back. So now you fast forward from late January 2018, just a few months. July, early July, early mid-July 2018. They are back. There's still that excitement, don't get me wrong. People are, you know, they're, they're kind of hyped up that they're back. Oh, you know, they, they were unavailable the first time, so now, you know, I could finally try them again. I could finally try them for the first time. Oh, I've missed them, it's going to be great, you know, etc., etc. Still that hype, still that interest. All right. Well, again, it's topical. Let's try it out. Let's see how they are. So, did another review of them. Nacho fries from Taco Bell are back, but analytically, you can immediately see there being a major difference. The initial review got 3.4 million views. How much did the video proclaiming and indeed celebrating the return of them, how many views did that get? 243,000. Now still, that's pretty good. But compare that to 3.4 million, and it's two totally, you know, one is on a whole other level than the other. What does that suggest right then and there? And this goes to pretty much all gimmicks. That initial interest, that initial hype, the odds of it being replicated, not non-existent, but are extremely, extremely slim, and extremely unlikely. 
It's not to say it's impossible, but it's incredibly improbable. Because even while there's still some interest, you're going to have people that have think, well, I already tried them out, eh, on to the next. Been, been there, done that. So they're back for a week or two, then they're gone. Now this is the important part. This is kind of when the gimmick starts getting stale. Take them back. A few months pass. It's early 2019. They release them again. I try them again. Are Taco Bell's nacho fries still good? 170,000 views. Now that's 70,000 lower than their return from July of 2018. So it goes downhill still because the interest expressed continues to wane. Now, eventually I got sick of trying them out because I thought, all right, for God's sake, these are French fries. How much can I say about them? Well, they're back. Taste like they always tasted. Slightly more expensive. And that's the review. So I said, you know, forget it. They're going to keep doing this every several months. They can, but it would be pointless for me to just review it over and over and over again. It's like I'd feel like I'm living in some sort of time loop, and I'm just going to be perpetually stuck reviewing the nacho fries from Taco Bell. It's like, it's, it's a stupid. And, you know, I could start, I could tell. People just don't really care. Because it's like, so? You know, I already know what they taste like. Yeah, you know, all right, yeah, it's great that they're back. They've already brought them back a dozen times. So what, what is it to me? For the fun of it, I decided, after not trying them for four years, I thought, oh, all right, I'll try them out again. Let's see how they are, 2023. I tried them out, and they were all right. They were overpriced, though, I could tell you that. They increased the price by probably 50%. There was really no interest. And compared to most reviews, even for items that generally don't have a ton of interest, that review performed considerably worse. Why? Because it's a stale gimmick. What motivation has someone to watch the fifth review that I did for an item that's been brought back probably 15 times in the last five years. So that just exemplifies a stale gimmick, the nacho fries. Odds are, unless they do something extraordinary with them, or, you know, something changes and we enter an alternate reality, and all of a sudden everyone cares about the nacho fries again, I'm probably never going to try them, at least officially, anymore. Unless there's something really worth talking to, because I see no point, right? That's the thing, I just see no point. I could put that time and effort and resources into a review that I think would be far more helpful, far more informative than what this would be. 
So for the fun of it, I eventually, I kind of poked a little bit of fun at the whole gimmick because I knew this was like one of those things I know people aren't really going to watch it. They don't really, they don't really care. So I thought, all right, I could, I could have some fun with the title of this one and it's not going to hurt me any. So I decided to sarcastically title the review, Taco Bell's Nacho Fries Are Back, then in parentheses, for the 15th time. <laughs> because, you know, that's how I feel about it. It's like, oh, all right, they are, they're, they're back again. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just one of, those, one of those things. So it's, you know, it's all hierarchical, where there's a certain things that odds are will do quite well. It's like celebrity-themed meals. There's always going to be that interest there. Right, certain pizzas, certain wings, like the really spicy stuff, generally is going to drum up some interest. Or certain uh, contemporary promotions, or if it's like a really colorful, eye-catching item. It's like there's certain things that you just know uh, people might find interesting. And uh, like I'll give a good example. Recently, I tried out the Spider-Verse Whopper from Burger King. That's a good example of an item that would be in terms of the hierarchy, interest-wise, it would be at the top of the hierarchy because it, it meets all the criteria. And indeed, when you look at the analytics, uh, it's, it's verified. Where it's colorful, it's eye-catching, it's in regards to a new movie coming out. You know, so it just, it, it hits all the marks. And, uh, you know, I tried it out. It actually wasn't a bad sandwich. Burger King, they're always, they go all out as far as uh, the mayonnaise is concerned. What on earth is this? What are you talking about? Just got... What does it even mean by this? Sorry about that. I actually, I'll be honest, I lost my train of thought. I uh, had my email open and uh, this bizarre. It's actually about Taco Bell, but it was just weird. I'm not gonna, I'm not going to uh, read it because I don't really think it's appropriate, but some guy, I guess, was felt it appropriate to, um, how do I say, give me the full assessment of uh, a spicy item uh, that I guess he consumed from Taco Bell in uh, uh, all the detail as far as both the consumption and excretion process is concerned. It's just, it was bizarre. Anyway, interesting that it was about Taco Bell, but, you know, it's a chain that does have a lot of interest. But you could even have, you know, be a chain that has a lot of interest, but if you just have the same stale concept again and again and again, people will just get tired of it. Case in point, nacho fries. So, it's just some random talk. I was just looking at the YouTube channel. I had it open. I was managing things a little bit. And then, you know, I decided, oh, I'll pick up the microphone and talk a little bit. And I didn't really have anything I wanted to talk about. So as I was just looking at the, the page of the videos, I just kind of 
It was a random thought that popped into my head. And I thought, ah, what the heck, let's talk about the little hierarchy. Very dry discussion, but I guess it's... Well, it's original discussion nonetheless, you know, it's not like I'm responding to something, it's just me talking. Let's look at the news, see what's going on. Giving you a date check, it is uh, the late hours of May 24th, 2023. Soon to be the 25th. This probably won't be out for another week or two, given the, given the uh, time frame that I usually operate at. A lot of the news right now is very political, and I try to avoid that stuff because it's like, you know, people are going to feel how they feel about about this sort of stuff. And uh, there's so many venues and places where you could hear any point of view, any perspective you want, any way you want it. I mean, you're going to get it. So it's like, why why contribute? It's just a... It's just like a, it's the whole realm of, of mudslinging, essentially. Leave that to the pundits who, uh, whose, whose life revolves around this stuff. I'll stay on the sidelines and watch the mess. Doesn't mean I'm not going to have opinions about it, but I just don't think it's worth the time, effort, or uh, any of that to share those opinions, it's just pointless. I think a lot of it, it, it just doesn't even matter in the end. You know, because it's just gonna, it's gonna play out how it plays out, regardless of whatever I think about it. It's, it's irrelevant, it's like as inconsequential as it gets. It's what I think, anyway. It doesn't matter. So it's like, you know, everything in the news today, of course, is about uh, DeSantis. Announced that he's going to, uh, he's officially running for president. So, you know, now you're going to be seeing that a lot. And uh, granted, you know, the primaries haven't even begun yet. But it's going to uh, be a whole... It's going to be a whole show and all of that. So, grab the popcorn and, uh, and get ready. Watch the fireworks if you're into that sort of thing. Because there's going to be plenty, I can tell you that. And then you have the the debt ceiling talks where each side points the finger at the other and says it's your fault for not doing anything about it, etc. Ukraine stuff. Let's see. There was a... Uh, Two things. What's this? No, it's not. Where was the story that I saw? There were two. Here it is. Okay, that's one. Would it be in this section? I'm looking for the second one. There we go. Okay. First and foremost, a lot of people don't really think about this stuff because you're not really in the region, and I get it, that's how it is for a lot of things. Doesn't impact me, don't care about it, you know? I like to focus on world events, but... It's just, it's human nature, it's my opinion. But... 
tropical weather always interests me. Even the tropical weather in uh, the Pacific Basin, not even just the Atlantic. There's a, an incredibly powerful typhoon, super typhoon, they call it, which is like the equivalent to a major hurricane. Very low pressure, 924 millibars. Now, granted, it's not in the teens yet, but I mean, it's looking good. Not a meteorologist, granted, nor will I pretend to be one, but, you know, the official data suggests that it's still intensifying, very strong, excellent radar presentation, a good-looking storm, and not one that you want to be in the path of. Sustained winds of around 155 miles per hour. And when you look at the radar, especially the satellite, I mean, you'll see that perfect eye to the storm. Yeah, that thing is a beast right there. And it hit the island of Guam recently passed through there. It's one of the strongest storms in recent times to hit the island. And here's an article. And this is the case with some of these really strong storms. Super Typhoon Mawar hit Guam as a Category 4 storm Wednesday, bringing hurricane force winds, heavy rain. It was marking the strongest storm to hit the U.S. Pacific Territory in decades. It clipped the northern part of Guam before 9 p.m. local time. Warnings in effect for winds of 115 miles per hour or greater for tornado-like damage, the National Weather Service said. The typhoon's eye wall passed over the northern tip of Guam around 8.45 p.m. Wednesday evening with 145 mile per hour winds. Power has been knocked out to almost the entirety of the island. And there's multiple concerns, because when the damage is that bad, you have to rebuild the infrastructure. And, I mean, logistically, it'll just take a while. And then you have both the flooding rains, the wind damage, and then the storm surge as well. And uh, then, of course, being that it's uh, an island, you know, you have some logistical difficulties, too. It might take a little while longer to recover just as far as getting the, the necessary supplies, personnel, resources, you name it, over there. So, you know, it's just a really strong storm that obviously hit, they said, one of the strongest in decades. Uh, you know, I think it's it's still ongoing, so the, the time to really survey the damage has yet to occur. But uh, the way these storms are, it's really case by case. Sometimes you see these storms, and uh, they look really, really nasty on the radar, they can verifiably be uh, quite horrific. But as far as the actual impacts from the storm go, it winds up actually not being too bad. It's really case by case, but you can't just assume that it's not going to be bad. Like sometimes you'll get these strong hurricanes that'll hit and it's like, all right, yeah, there's a couple trees down, there's some damage, but you could recover from it. And then you have those storms that hit, which is, there's nothing left. What is there even to recover? There's nothing there. It's all destroyed. And, uh, 
It's like to give an example. In Florida, back in 2017, you had Hurricane Irma. It's an impressive storm. It had its day in the news. It was a it was a full blown hurricane, caused damage. People sadly lost their lives, but uh, the recovery was pretty quick, and it wasn't too bad. Hurricane Ian, on the other hand, in some of those areas of southwest and even central Florida, as far as the uh, flooding went, uh, that got hit. Total loss. There's you know, if you want to recover from it. You have to tear everything down and uh, rebuild from scratch. It's not just a matter of, oh, yeah, I just uh, have to put a little tarp over this part of the roof and uh, get a few uh, little basic uh, repairs done and uh, get a tree service to uh, take down this tree at some point. No big deal. It's like it's totally different. It's a difference between that and now your home doesn't even exist anymore. So, I don't know which one of those storms this is going to be. Hopefully, it'll be the, the, the former. And it could look really nasty on the radar, but Guam was able to uh, take a bit of a beating and uh, pull through. Hope that's the case. You know, there's actually two shortwave stations on Guam. They're both religious stations. So, it's like they obviously have their base of listeners, but, you know, I don't know how appealing people would find the content, but one of them is a station that goes by the call sign KSDA, and it's operated by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. They have a couple 100-kilowatt transmitters, mostly targeting Asia, And then the second station is called KTWR. And at this point in time, I'd have to clarify, I think, with the name, because I think it would just cause too much confusion otherwise. So the name of the organization, it's called Trans World Radio. And I think, you know, these days you'd have a connotation. You'd think, oh, well, you know, this must be like a really uh, progressive station, you know, Trans World Radio. But the station, it's actually, it's a religious station. It's been around since 1952. It's a multinational evangelical Christian media distributor. One of the largest Christian media organizations in the world. So they have some transmitters. It's just like religious programming. And uh, they have some transmitters in Guam as well. Again, they mostly target Asia. But... So far, there haven't been any updates on either of those stations. They're both off the air, obviously. Uh, But who knows what sort of condition they're in and uh, what will occur. It It really would not surprise me in this day and age if either of those stations are either significantly damaged or are destroyed by this storm. I think we're at that point, as far as shortwave goes, that they're not going to bother to repair them. I think they're just going to say, all right, we had a good run, and uh, that's going to be that. You know, we'll close up shop. Because as far as the availability of parts, resources, the personnel to even uh, work with these resources, 
and the extraordinarily massive costs associated therewith. For an audience that is indeterminate, you've either got to have really deep pockets, or the money isn't going to be there, and you're going to have to pull out. So, I just have a feeling, because you see this happen, I saw this happen with China Radio International. Something will happen to a station, and they'll make the assessment on the spot. Is it worth it to salvage this? Or is it better to just pack up and say, all right, it's been a good run, and that's it. Most of the time, the stations do the latter in this day and age because the costs are just way too high. It's like, like I said, with China Radio International. Now, they have probably like a hundred transmitters in China still, but they had this uh, relay station in Albania, uh, which had a couple high-power transmitters that they owned and operated and used to broadcast to Europe and North America. And in late 2019, there was an earthquake in Albania. That transmitter site that China Radio International had was damaged in the earthquake. And I guarantee they probably saw the costs and they figured, all right, well, we could either dump millions into fixing this or we could just take a couple of the transmitters that we have lying around in China, fire those up, and uh, get right back on the air without having to dump all these millions of dollars. So they did the latter. There was another instance where the Voice of America, U.S. government broadcaster, they had a transmitting station in Sri Lanka. This was not impacted by a natural disaster, but it was right on the coast. The air from the ocean had uh, caused uh, quite a bit of rust in some of the antennas. They did an assessment, and they figured, all right, half these antennas look like they're going to fall down if uh, there's as much as a breeze. We could either spend millions of dollars to fix them, or we can shut down the station and move the broadcasts to another transmitting facility. They went with the latter. They said, all right, now, the site's done. Disassemble it, scrap it, etc., and move the broadcasts that have listeners uh, to our transmitting site in Kuwait or move it to our transmitting site in Thailand, which is what they did. Now... As far as the two organizations, Adventist World Radio, Adventist World Radio, I think this is the only site that they actually own, but they do purchase airtime from other facilities, so if their station is destroyed, it wouldn't surprise me if they just move some of the broadcasts that they know had an actual audience to... Uh, let's say some of the transmitters in Central Asia or South Asia that can still reach where they're trying to reach. And they would do that to substitute 
that station in Guam. Transworld Radio, on the other hand, they actually do own another transmitting site, but it's in Eswatini in southern Africa, and that's mostly just for broadcasting to Africa. It really wouldn't it wouldn't be sufficient to reach Asia. So they'd probably go a similar route and they would probably because they also purchase some airtime from other sites. They'd probably do the same thing, so you know, there would be some alternatives. I don't think they're all gonna go off the air, but if those sites are actually damaged by the storm, I just can't see them in this day and age working over all the dough to just replace them when uh, they could just substitute it. It's much more cost-effective. I know if I had to make that choice, that's what I would do. So we'll see what happens there. Interjecting real quick, there's actually been a little bit of break, of a break, I should say, as far as the recording goes. After I mentioned those two radio stations and the uh, typhoon, I was just kind of out of energy, so I paused for a bit. Now it's uh, a day or two later compared to when I originally did that opening segment, so I actually do have a little bit of an update, not like anyone cares, about those stations on the island of Guam, and the news isn't good. The news is not good, though at this point I don't really expect there to be all that much good news. So, the first station, KTWR, that one got hit the hardest, easily. They submitted a report, and it reads as follows. Typhoon Mawar has left the Pacific island of Guam. Damage to the facilities of KTWR, our shortwave station on the island, are worse than originally believed. Challenging days lie ahead. Grant Hodgins, station director at KTWR, were able to reach the station on Thursday morning it was apparent that all five of our antennas sustained major damage, many of which are a total loss. So that's the first uh, update there. That station is completely and totally off the air, and I am not convinced that they're ever going to come back. So that's one station gone at this point. The second station, KSDA, the uh, Seventh-day Adventist church station, they also have five antennas. Four of those five are damaged, so they say we could only broadcast with one antenna. So they have also been substantially damaged, although not to the extent of KTWR, wherein uh, at least they are still operable, but to a very limited extent. So, KSDA is down from maybe five transmissions simultaneously to being able to only have one transmission. So, their capabilities are significantly reduced. 
So of these two stations, which had about ten transmitters between them all, nine of those ten transmissions are off the air, and who knows if they will ever even come back. I never really listened to any of those broadcasts. Uh, Occasionally, I would tune in to KTWR uh, for their English program, but that's about it. But who knows if they'll even ever be back. It's just a, a sad moment. I mourn the loss of the infrastructure, of course. And to me, anyway, part of the fun of shortwave was the variety of programming. Even if you didn't really listen to or care for it all, it was the fact that there are all these faraway signals that you could sift through and sort from and hear all sorts of interesting uh, languages, you name it, that you would just never hear otherwise. And uh, it was just cool being able to scan around and hear these broadcasts, for instance, from the island of Guam. I just thought these things were kind of cool. Some people would get it, some people won't, and I understand that. Um, But to see all that off the air is, uh, yeah, I don't like it. And then, to pour some salt in the wound, because this is the way it goes. This is like twisting the knife at this point. So to make matters worse, there was a report that emerged, apparently from someone who works at one of the BBC World Services shortwave transmitting stations, uh, because the BBC, they are still on shortwave, they still have Uh, a number of transmitting facilities around the world because they're a major station. Some of them they buy airtime from, but there are a couple that they actually own completely. And the stations that the BBC has total ownership of, they have one transmission facility in the UK, which makes sense. It's in a place called Wooferton, They have another transmission facility in Oman. They have a transmission facility on Ascension Island. And they have another transmission facility in Singapore. So a report emerged from someone who works at the BBC facility in Oman. He said, I've received word that the BBC is going to close down the transmitting station in Singapore next month. And while right now it's a bit of a rumor, I believe it, year after year, that station in Singapore has been used less and less and less. And right now, in 2023, it's only being used at around 15 to 20 percent of its capacity, which to me would indicate that it is a candidate for closure. It's a major transmitting facility. It had nine 250-kilowatt transmitters, and it was mostly used by the BBC for their broadcasts to Asia. Right now, that transmitting site has about 30 broadcasts per day, 20 of which are in English. 
The others are in Burmese, Korean, Pashto, and Dari. So they have their English service to South Asia, Southeast Asia, East, and occasionally Central Asia uh, that transmits from there. They have their service to Myanmar. They have frequencies to Afghanistan and frequencies to the Korean Peninsula. Now, some of these broadcasts that have higher listenership might just get moved to a separate facility. For instance, the broadcasts to Afghanistan and the Korean Peninsula will probably just be moved elsewhere and will remain on the air. They just won't be transmitted from Singapore anymore. Uh, but a lot of these English broadcasts might just get discontinued completely. So, it's a shame. I always enjoyed listening to transmissions from the station in Singapore. And if you were located on the U.S. West Coast, and you enjoyed listening to the BBC World Service on shortwave, I'm afraid to say that you're going to be out of luck. Because most of the BBC frequencies that could be picked up on the West Coast originated from the transmitting station in Singapore. And a lot of the time, listeners in California, Washington State, Oregon, etc., those would be the only BBC transmissions uh, that you could really get a good signal of. And uh, those are probably all going to be gone next month. So again, uh, it's sad to see that as well. Nine 250-kilowatt transmitters. So more signals going away. So that would be in total, in the month of May, I guess 18 separate shortwave transmitters are off the air. It's a shame. I don't expect anything different in this day and age, but I would be lying if I said... I liked seeing this, because I don't, obviously. There was a listener who emailed in about a week or two ago who asked a question, pretty much said, I finished listening to your 2018 State of Shortwave video. Now that it is five years later, what do you think of shortwave? Do you think it will be around for some time? I sure hope so. I listen every night for hours. You asked a straightforward question, and I will give you a straightforward answer. If I told you it's going to be around for some time, that would be a flat-out lie. Five years ago, it might seem silly to say, but shortwave broadcasting was even more alive then than it is now. And I think you might reasonably ask, well, in what ways has shortwave uh, continued to decline since 2018? And as a matter of fact, what I actually had done Granted, there are some months where I haven't 
done this, but since at least early 2019, on a monthly basis, I had tried to note down what observations I have come across as far as shortwave and its decline. And it's a good example of kind of... You don't notice it in the short term because there's still plenty on the air. But little by little, those numbers diminish, but it's at such a gradual gradual rate uh, that you won't really notice it until years have passed. So I'll give an example, because I'm looking at the file right now. In January of 2019, all broadcasts of Aegean radio are canceled, which was domestic broadcast from Russia. It was transmitted out of Krasnodar, Russia, with 100 kilowatts. That's gone. All India Radio, national channel, on 9380 kilohertz, shut down. February 2019. All shortwave broadcasts from South Africa have been shut down. Channel Africa, South Africa's international broadcaster, as well as Radio Sondergrenz, the domestic broadcaster, have left the airwaves permanently. Likewise, dozens of BBC relay transmissions, as well as broadcasts from the Voice of America, Deutsche Well, Adventist World Radio, have been discontinued uh, because this major shortwave station in South Africa closed down. Also in February 2019, Voice of Armenia has discontinued broadcasts. The last regional broadcaster in Nigeria, Radio Nigeria Kaduna, on 6090 kHz, has shut down. Radio Hargesa in Somalia, off the air, March 2019. Radio Bangladesh Betars, external service, off the air. NHK Radio Japan discontinued broadcasts in Spanish and Portuguese to North and South America. Voice of the Islamic Republic of Iran, all Spanish broadcasts discontinued. And it just goes on and on and on. Now let's fast forward to 2022. Voice of Greece, all shortwave broadcasts discontinued. Radio Nacional de Angola, discontinued. Zambia National Radio 1, discontinued. Tanzania's Broadcasting Corporation, discontinued broadcasts. January 2023, BBC World Service, discontinued Persian broadcasts, Bengali broadcasts, and Arabic broadcasts. Radio Kuwait, off the air. Radio Austria International, severely cut back broadcasts. Voice of Vietnam, discontinued domestic transmissions. EWTN Radio's English service, off the air. Radio Luxembourg, off the air. RUV Radio Iceland, one of their transmissions, off the air. RTE Radio 1, Ireland, off the air. Absolute Radio, UK, off the air. And it just goes on and on and on. So, as much as I want to say, oh yeah, it's going great, there's tons to listen to. Look at that. There's your answer. So, my advice, as far as 
shortwave and all of that goes, the medium is in inexorable decline. There is nothing that is going to save this at this point in time. There is absolutely nothing. Enjoy it while it's still here, because this is it. I don't think there's going to be much to listen to by 2030. I really don't believe so. I think that the way things are looking, by 2030, what you could hear on the air right now, today, early June of 2023, this is going to seem lively compared to what's even in the future just seven years down the line. So if you're contemplating getting a shortwave radio, or if you have one and you're thinking about uh, getting back into the medium, understand these are the medium's final days. This is it. You've probably got about seven years uh, before it's going to be a waste of time, so enjoy it while it's still around, because it clearly is not going to be for much longer. Of course, it's extremely pessimistic, but reality supports that notion. I still broadcast, of course, on shortwave, because the costs are still reasonable, and there is still sufficient listener response, and I've no intention of leaving it, but just be aware that there are many broadcasters uh, that are on the fence about it. It's just something to be aware of. My personal advice would be to try to hear the sorts of cool international stations uh, whose days may very well be numbered. Uh, so for instance, really try to listen to stations like Radio Mali, The Voice of Nigeria, All India Radio, Radio Slovakia, Radio Prague, Radio Exterior de España, Voice of Turkey, Radio Romania, Radio Thailand, The Voice of Indonesia, KBS World Radio, South Korea, Radio New Zealand, etc. Those sorts of stations, because those are the ones I think that are most endangered. I think that some of the U.S. domestic broadcasts, like many of the religious ministries, and some of the broadcasts like Infowars, will still probably be around, um, but it's those government-funded uh, news-slash-cultural transmissions that I believe, anyway, are endangered. So those, you know, I don't know how long those will be around for, because those are really going away fast. So with that caveat expressed, now that you kind of know, I think, what you might be in for, if there is anyone out there still contemplating, and uh, still thinking at least, about getting into shortwave, even if you're still a little bit on the fence, if you want any information at least, if you want uh, any radio recommendations, and this is just an open invitation, uh, if you want any of that, or if you have a radio, and uh, you're interested in trying to get uh, maybe better reception so you can hear some of these stations, just let me know, uh, reach out, and I'll certainly try to help as best I can. Uh, I have a number of guides for both of these things in terms of radio recommendations, uh, as well as some basic tips and tricks 
as far as making the most out of your radio goes. Uh, so if you want any of that information, uh, just reach out. I'll be happy to send uh, some your way. So all you have to do is send in an email to the following email address. That's V O R W I N F O at gmail.com. And again, uh, I'll be happy to send whatever information uh, your way. But yeah, just be aware, uh, this is a medium in decline, and those trends are not reversing. Ukraine, all of that, did nothing for this medium. And I know those are harsh words, but that's the reality. The whole conflict in Ukraine, as I reiterate, did nothing for it. So make the most of it while it's still around, because despite the fact that even five years ago, there was much more on the air than there is today, five years from now, there's going to be so much less on the air than you can hear right now. So at this point, it's like death is inevitable for it. So enjoy whatever life is left in it while there is any life at all. So it's like, if you want to get into it, this is the last call. I mean, that's it. Five years from now, it might not even be worth it. So if you want uh, to get into it, especially to try to get an international perspective, your time is running out. You still have a little bit of time, but it is, it's really diminishing fast. So the choice is yours. Like I said, at the very least, if you want information, I have information, and I'll be happy to send it your way. Uh, it's not a problem for me to do that at all. Uh, you know, I'm here to promote the medium as best I can, but I try to be realistic, too. So that's all there is to it. Sorry if my appeal came off as a bit crude, but I'm just trying to be realistic, and I'm just trying to portray its current status in the most realistic and blunt manner possible. Now, being that this segment is recorded a day or two after that original introduction, I know some of you are probably wondering what exactly was the second thing that I was looking at in news. I have no idea. Obviously, it wasn't important because it completely slipped my mind, but I'll just be honest, I have no idea what that was even about. I. I I don't know. I don't know what that second uh, news item was supposed to be. I have no, no clue whatsoever. So with that, being that I've talked about everything that I want to talk about, let's open up the email now and let's get into the mailbag segment. So the way this next part of the show works is very simple. All that I'm going to do is open up the email and read and respond to whatever feedback there is to respond to. Obviously, listener participation is key for this part of the show to be a success. This is the longest-running segment on VORW. It's been ongoing for about nine years now. And here's how it works. It is a blank slate. If you have any questions, comments, 
pieces of feedback, topic suggestions, any random anecdotes you would like to share, if there's anything interesting you watched, learned, etc., that you would like to share, all you have to do is send in an email to the following email address. Again, it's completely free form. If you're not sure maybe what to write, just listen to this segment. You'll see that there's all sorts of emails covering all sorts of topics. Maybe take a little bit of inspiration from that, but it's a blank slate. All you have to do is send in a piece of uh, feedback to the following email address, and then there's a good chance that I will respond to it verbally in the next program. Email address as follows, V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com. Once more, V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the remainder of the program. This is VORW International. Comes in from Mark in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Hello, VORW. Hoping this email finds you well. Curious, have you ever considered applying for a radio job in the AM or FM commercial marketplace? I'd assume that you would be more friendly toward the talk format as opposed to a music disc jockey. Best regards, Mark in Vancouver, British Columbia. So thanks for your question, Mark. No, I've never really considered it. Uh, Well, there was a time years ago when I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life uh, where that was something that I contemplated, but the problem is that as far as getting a job in radio, be that uh, as entertainment, so as a DJ or a radio show host, or from the technical side of things, be that as an engineer, a board operator, even in a a management position, uh, there is no money to be made in it whatsoever. So as far as maybe finding the job enjoyable, maybe it would be, But in terms of being able to have a roof over my head, being able to afford cost of living, food, medical expenses, you name it, that's just completely, that's not going to happen. So in terms of any sort of sustainability financially, there is nothing to be found there. And uh, it pays nothing. You know, it's like, all right, if you are one of the few nationally syndicated radio show hosts out there. So if you're like George Norrie from Coast to Coast AM, or if you're like Sean Hannity, the late Rush Limbaugh, if you're like Dave Ramsey, you name it, all right, then sure. You might actually get paid a decent amount of money, but anyone else who does any sort of talk program or hosts a music show or again works as a board operator, music director, market, I mean, you name it, there's just no money to be made, so it's just not a uh, logical choice in that regard. And uh, likewise, because my energy level is extremely variable, and, uh, you know, things just are how they are, 
I think it would be exceedingly difficult for me to be able to hold a job in that sense. I'd certainly try to the best of my ability to do so, if uh, needed, um, but sometimes life might just get in the way of things, uh, whether I want it to or not. And that's another thing I need to take into account. So, it's not something that I even consider at this point in time, but uh, in the past, it was an idea that passed through my mind once or twice, but I quickly dismissed it because there's really just nothing... There's no uh, payoff to it or anything uh, in that regard. So, thank you there for your question. Hello, my name is Historic Hidings on the internet. I'm a listener for two to three years, and I have really enjoyed your podcast. I listen to it while I game, and your conversations calm me and bring me a lot of information I had not yet known prior. You are an inspiration to me, and you have inspired me to start to think about creating my own podcast. My question for you is, do you have any tips to tell a new podcaster or any advice? Thank you, and have a great day, evening, or night. Stay awesome, and I'll be excited to listen to your new podcast. So thank you for your question there. So the way I see it, you're aspiring to do a podcast, and you're just wondering, have I any any tips, being that I've done this for a while? So the thing that you have to understand about my my case, my situation is that this podcast is not something that's really done uh, as a serious undertaking. Uh, these days, I just do the show to do it, uh, for the heck, about, uh, heck of it. I talk about whatever I talk about, and, and that's all that there is to it. Uh, this program isn't really growing any. Uh, I would say it's essentially stagnant. It's not financially or economically viable, it really doesn't make anything. So, as a result, could you call this podcast a success? No, I can't. Do I care that it's not a success? No, I don't. Like I said, this is just something that I do for whoever listens, and that's all that there really is to it. Uh, But as a result, I just don't know how comfortable I would feel giving someone uh, tips and advice when looking at my own show in the mirror, essentially, I cannot consider this a successful podcast. So it's like, do you really want the advice from someone whose own show, self-admittedly, is a failure in terms of the, the stereotypical benchmarks, if I were you, I wouldn't want that advice. So I would advise, my personal advice, is to look to other people for advice. That's my advice to you, because my attitude going into this is not to grow the show, it's not to grow the channel. If it does, that's great, but I just do this just to talk, and, uh, and that's it. So, now granted, if you're going into this with a mindset that it's like, all right, what the hell, I'll talk for however long I talk, and whoever watches it, watches it, 
whoever listens, listens. That's fine. That's no big deal. I just want to do the show. That's, that's all there is to it. Then that's one thing. But if you're going into this with an attitude, I want my show to be something. I want to be able to make a few bucks off of this. I want to have an audience. I want to get sponsorships, etc. Just don't look to me for advice on that. There are plenty of places you can look for advice. You could even just watch some guides on YouTube. There's some uh, podcast websites and forums that you could check out. Even there's subreddits out there uh, that have all sorts of good guides and information if you want to take it in that direction. And uh, please look there. I, I just, I'm not comfortable uh, giving advice in that regard when uh, I feel like I would just be BSing you, for lack of a better word. Uh, but from my experience, just understand that if you do want your show to try to be something, it's, it's harder than it looks, and it's going to require a lot of time and a lot of effort. And just don't bite off more than you could chew. That's my advice, really. That, I think, is advice that I would feel comfortable giving. That's about it. But just don't bite off more than you could chew. Understand what you feel you're capable of. Establish a schedule. Stick to that schedule. And uh, just don't deviate. Now, if you just want to do the show however you want to do it, and you're not about growth or money, and again, you just want to do a show. What I would advise, anyway, is, number one, have your own style. Don't feel like, okay, I'm going to get to the microphone, but I have to be this way. I have to be that way. You know, if you do that and you're trying to be a certain do a certain approach whilst doing a podcast, it's going to get really old really fast. And I could guarantee that if you're going to do a long-form show, you're going to get sick of having to do this certain podcast act, for lack of a better word. So the way to be able to do these without any incident or issue is just talk how you normally talk and uh, be yourself and it makes it a whole lot easier. It's like, for me, when I'm doing this right now, I just come in here, I set up the microphone, and I just talk. So it's effortless, because it's like, all right, yeah, I'm just talking, and there happens to be a microphone in front of me. So it makes it a whole lot easier, which is why the time is able to pass pretty easily. If you're doing a podcast that's also pre-recorded, like I do with mine, then don't feel like you have to do it all at once. Do a bunch of different takes, edit things together, and uh, then you could get it exactly the way you like it. And that'll also help in terms of stress, workload, you name it. Another thing I would advise, just from a basic technical standpoint, when you get a microphone, please get a pop filter in front of the microphone. It looks like this little mesh netting sort of thing, but please get one. That is absolutely essential. It will really help in terms of your audio quality and in terms of making 
the experience more bearable for listeners. If you can't get a pop filter, then my second advice would be to have the microphone positioned at an angle. So do not have the microphone directly in front of your face. For instance, I have my laptop in front of me. I'm sitting here at the desk. I have my laptop directly in front of me. My microphone is to the left of the laptop by several inches angled toward my face. But as a result, as I'm able to enunciate anything that I obviously exhale by enunciating does not hit the microphone. So it avoids those sorts of just those loud crashes or whatever you want to call it if you accidentally breathe on the microphone. And uh, that's another thing that I would recommend. Uh, On a final note, it's up to you if you want to film your podcast or not. Some people do that. Some people don't. Obviously, if you film it, make sure you have a good camera, good lighting, but understand that with filming uh, comes a whole other element. You know, editing it becomes a whole lot more difficult because now, if you want to take your time, people are going to see jump cut after jump cut after jump cut. That's no fun. So understand it has its benefits and its drawbacks. Filming the podcast might get more viewers and listeners, um, but it's going to be more of a one-take kind of thing on your end than just a smooth process of being able to take your time, say what you want to say, edit anything out, etc. But uh, that's just some general advice. Really, just go and look at uh, various resources out there. Again, there are forums, videos, subreddits, tutorials, you name it that uh, will really get you in a good position. And uh, in the end, my view, do it for fun, see how you like it, and see what comes of it. So that's uh, that's my opinion there. Understand if you're getting into it, everything starts off small. Everything does. So even if you don't get many views, listens, or responses at first, Just understand, that's how it is for everyone. But keep it up. If you enjoy doing it, then keep doing it. And you never know. You never know what the future will hold. So thank you there for your question. All right, and going into the next email, this one comes in from Benjamin in Decatur, Illinois. I'd like to thank you sincerely for the effort you put into making your content. Your views, commentary, and observations are interesting and insightful, and always make for an enjoyable listening experience. I've been listening to your podcast for quite a while now, and I figured I would send in an email to ask you a question that I often think about. Why do you think that America has become such a divided country? I'm a relatively young person, who hasn't been able to experience much of America's history firsthand, but it seems to me that most citizens are at greater odds with one another than they have been for a long time. I understand that political ideologies like to paint the other side as an enemy, but what about the past decade in particular has caused such social animosity? 
I find myself worrying about the future of this country sometimes, and I feel that our inter-social framework is collapsing. What do you think may be the cause of this? So thank you, Benjamin, for your question. It's a good question, something that I know I've wondered, and uh, something I think that many others have as well. I could give two answers, one of which is uh, very straightforward, and the other is uh, a bit conspiratorial, I suppose, but it essentially builds on top of the first answer. Uh, You know, you could believe whatever you'd like, I'll just throw the thoughts out there, and that's all that there is to it. So, the non- conspiratorial answer, I believe, anyway. I really do think that social media and the internet play a major role in this. I think that it's greatly fueled a lot of the uh, the tensions, so to speak. Polarization and social media seem to go hand in hand. I think it's a combination of factors. I think society in general is in broad decline, largely. You know, in some ways it is, some ways it isn't, but as far as at least uh, decorum, respect, decency, dignity, etc., a lot of that seems to be going downhill in uh, many ways. Uh, With that, you have an increase in narcissism, So you have people who are extremely confident in themselves, in their views, and with that, that just kind of perpetuates that sort of vitriolic attitude because you have so many people out there now with this sort of I'm better than you attitude. I'm right and you're wrong and I'm better than you. People's attention spans are limited. I believe the quality of education has gone downhill. People are more impressionable. And you add all of this together, along with, as I said, the narcissism and the rampant social media, and then it's no wonder why the extreme polarization makes sense. It appeals to those types of folks, and it gives everyone a convenient boogeyman to blame all their problems for. And that's not to say that sometimes those those boogeymen aren't the causes of actual problems. Of course they are sometimes, but it's just easy to have your scapegoat. Everything's bad because of them. Everything, right? And there's money to be made in all of this. Various entities see that, i.e. the media, be that mainstream or independent, and they exploit the hell out of it, as do various politicians. It's not good for this country, in my opinion. It's not good for society. It makes everything worse. But if there are people out there profiting off of this, both in terms of financial gain, as well as perhaps getting power from it, 
via politics, then it's not going to end. They see it, and they're going to milk it as long as they possibly can, and as much as they possibly can. So, a lot of it, I think, is just broadly, a lot of factors and circumstances came together in a, a perfect storm of sorts, And when you have entities out there exploiting this for gain, both economic as well as political, then again, they're going to milk this and perpetuate it as much as they possibly can. That's my first answer. The second answer, and again, this is conspiratorial, but you can look at it through this lens, and I do believe it would make sense. Not saying it's the case, but I'm just saying it would make it makes sense to me anyway. That this also is part of a destabilization agenda in order to expedite perhaps the collapse or weakening of this country. It's like if you think about it this way, if you think how how intelligence agencies would think, I would wager, if you have a major adversary to the United States, and they've discovered, you know, there is a way that we can make our adversary, i.e. the United States, fall apart, make their own citizens turn on each other, fight amongst each other, thereby weakening the country, and we don't have to fire a single shot. Of course they're going to do it. So sometimes I see all of this, and I think that it's all part of a deliberate agenda in order to cause the maximum amount of tension, conflict, and confusion in society. Because again, looking at this through an adversarial perspective, the last thing you'd want is the population of your enemy to be united. If they're too busy fighting amongst themselves and destroying each other, then there's no way that they're suddenly going to become united against you. So when I think about it that way and I think maybe it is all part of some strategy to just weaken and destabilize the United States, you know, because there always is that phrase, united we stand, divided we fall. Yeah, I could see that. I think a lot of the strength that this country has comes from the concept of at least, and this goes for really any country, being unified as a population If that doesn't exist, then it's weakened enormously. And maybe the goal wouldn't be the the total destruction of the United States, but just to make it essentially powerless and ineffective on the world stage. And I'd say it's working. Because sometimes I can't help but think this way when I see all of this, and it seems so forced so artificial, so manufactured, and I feel like you have these 
these uh, voices in the media barking at you, hate each other, turn on your neighbors, they're your enemy. These people are evil, they don't deserve your respect, they're not even human beings, they should die, this, that, and the other thing. And it's just this continuous drumbeat of this, over and over and over and over. And I think there are organizations out there, even the social media companies, you name it, that could stop this, but they're actively perpetuating it. So what gives? And it makes me think that maybe it is also some sort of agenda, be that either from a foreign adversary or on a global scale. Because it just seems to me, like I said, maybe it's all just a coincidence, but it seems so ridiculous, so forced, so insane, so extreme and so sudden, that I just think to myself, how could this just come to be? Of course it's hard for people to totally agree with everyone on everything. It just doesn't happen. That's how people are. We always fight amongst ourselves, but to just suddenly have this sort of level of of just, I don't know, bitterness and spite, you name it, against each other, sometimes I can't help but think maybe this perfect storm came together for a reason, because maybe there were groups that wanted this to happen, and it did, and they're making sure that it does. I don't know. Sometimes I just, I I try to view situations through different perspectives. This is all speculative, granted, but uh, sometimes I can't help but see it that way, because when I look at it that way, does it make sense? Yeah, it does. And that makes more sense to me than even Uh, The former just happening. It's like if something is primed to happen, yeah, they're going to make sure it does. So I don't know. That's That's just my two cents. But if that is the case, you know, you just have to realize there's nothing you can do about it. I've said this before, and I still believe this, that the reason why I don't think the U.S. is going to get in another civil war anytime soon is because, and again, I think this is a good thing, people are too pacified to, uh, you know, social media and the internet, sports, celebrities, uh, the creature comforts of life, etc., that they're not going to be willing, regardless of how much they hate each other, to suddenly give all that up and uh, go pick up a uh, rifle and go fight in the woods for a few years or something. You know, it's just not going to... uh, People aren't willing to do that here. So that's why there's not going to be a civil war. Uh, But would it surprise me at this point, and this is where I do change my opinion, would it surprise me if a day comes where you maybe see uh, an actual legitimate insurgency in this country... That would not surprise me. It really wouldn't surprise me at this point if uh, a day comes where you begin to see a form of uh, insurgent warfare in the United States. Again, I don't think you're ever going to see full-blown civil war. Where you know, it's, it's not going to be like the Gettysburg 2.0 or something like that, but it wouldn't surprise me if a day comes where the polarization just continues and continues, and then all of a sudden things start happening. You know, you start seeing assassinations. Uh, You start seeing various improvised 
bombings here and there, deliberate attacks on infrastructure, people in certain political communities who might be outliers, you know, they might start getting killed and eventually they'll be found dead somewhere. And uh, I could see that happening. I could see that happening. And I could see both sides being responsible for this, really. Uh, so I could see that in the future. I'd actually expect it, you know, 10, 15 years down the line, that's going to be the future of the U.S. There's not going to be any groups holding any actual territory, but you're going to have these rogue, organized, domestic terrorist outlets motivated by political extremism that uh, are going to start doing this. I see that. I think that's going to be the U.S.'s uh, future. Yeah, very pessimistic, but that's that. that is how I see it. Because while I don't think it's going to get to a civil war, you know, you got to remember, there's 300-something million people in this country. So if things continue along this route, what's going to stop a thousand people from banding together and starting to do this sort of stuff? The more extreme people get, the more likely that scenario uh, is going to become. And I, I see it as an unavoidable reality, and I hate it. I don't want to see that happen but I really don't see a way that it's not going to happen. I think we're on that path. Because the way elections work, granted, you know, there's going to be a winner, and there's going to be a loser. And uh, more and more these days, a lot of people see elections as uh, now it's a matter of survival. And it's just going to take, you know, a couple more elections that... If certain sides, you know, they lose this, they lo it's just going to cause desperation and anger, and uh, it's just going to it's going to boil over. It's just going to, like I said, I just don't, I don't see it not getting to that point. But maybe I'm just that pessimistic. But in 2019, I wouldn't have said that, but now that's the way I see it going. Chris in Atlanta, Georgia, says, I was writing in to see if you're open to doing more energy crisis reviews. There's a great three-pack of my favorite monster flavors, Mango Loco, Pipeline Punch, and Papillion. All three great flavors, and I'd love to hear your opinion. Anyway, thanks for all you do. I still think that when... All is said and done, you'll be in the Hall of Fame of YouTube. The most original fast food reviewer. Thanks, Chris, in Atlanta, Georgia, for your suggestion. You'll have to look into that. I don't have anything against doing more of the uh, energy crisis reviews. So thanks for that suggestion there. I'll note it down. Monster, they always have a pretty good product, so thanks again for uh, suggesting that. This next message comes in from Holly, who writes, Greetings. I heard on your recent podcast that another listener was asking you if you'd tried out the Canadian Chicken Big Mac from McDonald's. I live on the border in Detroit and cross into Canada frequently for work, so the last time I crossed, I decided to try it out. It was disappointing at best, the chicken patties were paper-thin and didn't even match the circumference of the bun. It was more like a squashed chicken nugget in place of beef patties. 
It was fun to try, but I'd never get it again. That being said, living on the Canadian border gives me the added bonus of trying new foods that are released in Canada that are not available in the U.S. My favorite time this happened was when Canada was the selected country to roll out Starbucks Blonde Roast Coffee. For two years, I enjoyed Blonde Roast Lattes when they were not available in America. It is also interesting to note the differences in food standards. In my own country, I rarely eat fast food and would never consider a Chinese-style buffet. Both have led to later illness. In Canada, however, I can dine at fast food chains and buffet chains alike, and the food is generally better quality and more tasty than what I find in our home country. I rarely, if ever, get sick from the meals I eat north of the border. It's sad to say, but upon further inspection, a number of chemicals that are banned in Canada for food production are readily used in the U.S. It is sad to see, but it's clear, living this close, that the Canadian government tries to at least appear to care about its citizens with food safety and quality more than the U.S. government. It seems that on a larger scale, the U.S. is similar to the fast food industry itself, hell-bent on profits without regard for the garbage that ends up being consumed by us. It's very easy to see why your international audience sees different chains of higher quality than we do here at home. Anyway, thank you for your continued podcast. I've been a listener now for four years and continue to enjoy each episode multiple times. Keep up the good work from Holly. Thank you, Holly, for checking in. And uh, number one, I liked the uh, assessment of the chicken Big Mac. I I had a feeling it wasn't going to be all that good. Uh, But secondly, I appreciate the perspective about the quality difference from Canada to the U.S. I think that's a really interesting observation. And uh, I believe it. I believe it. You know, because I see how abysmal the quality is with so many things here. And uh, I like that you kind of compared and contrasted I thought that was very interesting, so thank you for sharing that. Interesting that, granted, it's fast food. I mean, obviously, it's not like the chicken Big Mac is gourmet or anything. I pretty much expected this is what it would be. But, uh, you know, the fact that the quality is still so different north of the border, it's very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. This email comes in from Susanna, who says, I was curious about your opinion on chemtrails, if you have any opinion at all. I don't blame you if you find the theory ridiculous, as I sort of roll my eyes when it is ever mentioned. However, every time I visit my in-laws in West Virginia, my father-in-law insists that they chemtrailed the crap out of their area, this in turn causing them sickness. I know planes cause condensation trails, But why would people believe the government would do such a thing? Seems very far-fetched. Thank you for your time. So thank you for your question there. Yeah, I mean, contrails are one thing, obviously. You know, you see them from uh, any sort of plane. 
a lot of the time it has to do with, I think, the uh, atmospheric conditions and all of that, maybe the dew point as well, as to how long you can see them for, etc. Uh, but then, of course, then, yeah, you, like you said, with like your in-laws, for instance, and you have people that will uh, posit, at least, that there's a very big difference between them and that you have the contrails, but then you also have chemtrails, which uh, generally they will uh, claim at least, you know, that there are special tanks in the backs of certain planes that will release a chemical concoction into the atmosphere that will eventually make its way down to the surface and contaminate both the air as well as the water, plant life, you know, the flora and the fauna. And that poison is contaminating all of these things and then is increasing rates of illness, cancer, etc., and uh, is increasing the risk of an early death. So you ask the question, why would the government do that? The people, again, who believe that the chemtrails are a thing, largely believe it's a depopulation agenda. So the answer would be, why would they do it? Because they want to kill people off. And that would be a way to do it with a degree of subtlety that, you know, if all these populations get cancer and die prematurely, they'll just say it was due to circumstance or bad luck or this, that, or the other thing. When reality, when in reality it would have been a deliberate action. But I'm just speaking hypothetically. That's just the, I'm just trying to portray how people who might believe the chemtrails, how they kind of see it. I myself don't really have any thoughts on them, but uh, I'm just familiar with the terminology and uh, those who believe them, what they see them as, and why. Thank you for your question. Uh, these are some thoughts from an anonymous listener. I have been in the know about the answer to the toilet paper obsession during COVID and must bring it to light for everyone. I wanted for someone else to answer it besides me. I don't care if you do or don't put this on your show, the best podcast to ever be created, by the way. But as long as you know, I'll be happy. Over half of toilet paper consumption before lockdown, was purchased by companies that provided it in bulk to businesses. When people no longer used it away from home, in places like work, restaurants, supermarket, etc., the demand was redirected from providers to companies to providers for private use. In high-populated areas, the local stores couldn't keep up. The average person had no idea why toilet paper was no longer on the shelves, and with media feeding into a narrative of the shortage being caused by panic, this led people to actually panic buy 
simply from fear of uncertainty. During this time, big business providers had shelves full of toilet paper that were just sitting there, waiting for somebody clever enough to order a few pallets from them instead of a couple rolls from their local Walmart. I saw many people come up with their own conclusions to why this shortage was happening, and every conclusion was politically based. Nobody believed me when I told them the consumption was just the same, the decade just shifted, even when I showed them I had ordered toilet paper that was well in stock from companies such as Granger, they were actually, they denied what I was showing them was real. This goes to show how strong a person will believe their personal worldview over the reality they can see right in front of them. It is also why I didn't answer the question when you first asked, as I didn't want to offend any of your listeners. God bless you, Review Bra, and all of your listeners, so thank you. Anonymous checking in with some toilet paper thoughts. That's interesting, but when you explain it, it does make sense. It's like, because, you know, then you mentioned, yeah, you're right. All the office buildings, all the schools, all the restaurants, all of that, they obviously have toilet paper, and they obviously use toilet paper, and they order large amounts of it. So if you close all of that, then, you know, wouldn't you think, yeah, with so much demand in that regard going down, then the supply should actually go up. But that's a good that's a good point that you made that you made actually, and I don't think a lot of people really think of it in that uh, regard. But some very interesting thoughts there. So thank you for sharing them. It's much appreciated. And uh, yeah, I know what you mean. You get people out there that you could show the evidence right in front of their face, and they are going to deny it till the bitter end because they're just so. Uh, set in their ways, right, one way or another, that you could show them conclusive proof, and it just, uh, it doesn't matter. You know, it's just not going to, they're just going to ignore it. This listener, no name was given, uh, in regards to Florida, from the new bill signed that prohibits immigrants from working, how do you plan to prepare for the impact in the agricultural industry and many other markets? Plus, with Florida going into hurricane season in the upcoming months, I estimate there will be a shortage. So thank you there for your question. I'm skeptical as to the actual impact. I've seen stories in the news about how the supermarkets are supposed to be empty right now and how the construction sites are derelict and uh, all the farms are abandoned and this, that, and the other thing, but when I've been out and about, uh, I see the opposite. Uh, All the truckers that are supposed to be gone, I see plenty driving around. I see the construction sites and everything still working. I see agricultural workers doing their thing, and I don't see any shortages. And I've seen the same thing reported from people all over the state. People down in Miami saying the same thing. People on the West Coast over in Lee County saying the same thing. You've got people in Polk County saying that. People in Jacksonville, Orlando, you name it. That they see all these headlines that say one thing, but 
in reality on the ground, uh, you're not seeing that. I know based on what I researched, there were some pictures of a supermarket that were being circulated on social media that said, you know, this is the beginning, and it showed an empty shelf, and it said, see, this is a result, it's just going to get worse and worse now. Uh, but then that very picture was actually traced back to, I think it was even 2020, during COVID, with all the product shortages there. There was another uh, picture that got shared on social media that said this was from a Publix supermarket, and you could see there's no produce anymore because of this, and there's going to be major shortages. When, if you looked at the grocery cart, it wasn't even from a Publix. It wasn't even in Florida. It was from a grocery chain that wasn't even in the state. And then there was a third picture I remember seeing, alleging the same thing. And you did a reverse image search, and you realized the picture was from 2019, and it was just an image of a single frozen cabinet that was malfunctioned and uh, emptied as a result. So I think it's a wait-and-see kind of thing. That's not to say that there won't be impacts. There may very well be. But right now... At least the the claims of there being immediate, drastic, and dire impacts uh, seem to be uh, generally false. Because I'm not seeing that on the ground. Most people in Florida aren't. And most of the pieces of evidence that there's something going on are all refuted. Verifiably so. Again, that's not to say that there might not be issues, but I've seen people who have said that everything's just collapsing right now, and uh, I don't think that matches the actual reality of the situation. There's plenty of people who would like to see that happen. There's plenty of people that wouldn't. It goes both ways. I think either way, regardless of how you view it or what you think, I don't think it's unwise to have some extra food. I know I do. Storable food, MREs, long-lasting stuff. It would be quite useful during a hurricane, or let's say uh, during times of unrest, or let's say that uh, that does amount to something. And there winds up being agricultural issues, logistical issues, supply shortages, right? You name it. And things start getting complicated in that regard. Well, then you'll be in luck because you'll have something to eat in case things hit the fan. So I think regardless of one's view, whether you think that that legislation is going to have an impact or not, whether you think it will have, or it, whether you think it has right now a dire impact, or whether many of the claims are exaggerated, whether it's really nothing's going to come of it and life goes on, or if down the road in a few months people are really going to be feeling it, I think regardless of however you see it, I would encourage someone 
to have some extra food if they're in a position to do so. You know, again, get some emergency food supplies. Especially in Florida, there's a reason you could even justify it to yourself right now if you think, oh, I don't know about... It seems kind of hard to convince myself that there's going to be an agricultural uh, problem or something like that. Well, then just look at the hurricanes. Say, well, if we get hit by another hurricane, Ian, wouldn't it be wise to have some food in case you're stuck at home for a bit? I don't know. I think that seems pretty reasonable to me. And hey, guess what? Justify it by that. Say it's for the hurricanes. And uh, guess what? If there actually winds up being issues with agriculture and uh, logistics, then you're still set. You're still good. So, regardless of the problem, uh, the legitimacy and the severity thereof, I am one to encourage having some extra food. Better safe than sorry, right? So, I would encourage someone to just be prepared. You don't have to go crazy with all this stuff. It's, it seems to me very reasonable. Very common sense. Makes sense to me. So, that's my belief anyway. And, uh, better safe than sorry. That's my opinion. Whether something comes of this or not, whether it's extremely consequential or exaggerated because of how politics are, no matter what, play it safe. Err on the side of caution. There's nothing wrong with that. I encourage it, so... That's my two cents. Whether you see things on the ground or not, hey, if you've got your bases covered, then that's what matters. So that's my opinion. Thank you for your question. We only have about six emails or so left to uh, get to. Again, not as much as far as turnout is concerned. Uh, This comes in from Matthew, who says... I know it's annoying when people point things out, but I could tell by looking at you that you are allergic to wheat. Just by seeing you on video, I can tell. Please consider getting a blood test done. The end result, if it's celiac disease, can be quite devastating. Love your videos and the radio broadcasts, although the podcast is better since my location is mostly static. I haven't bothered to try the shortwave. I don't know if you still do that. We're just online, so thanks, Matthew. So thank you for the heads up. That's something I'll look into. As far as the uh, radio goes, I still do it. Uh, You could just check the description of any video. You could check the channel about page uh, for the broadcast schedule. Uh, But I would recommend 4840 kilohertz, 2 a.m. Eastern, every Saturday morning. Or check out 4840 kilohertz at midnight Eastern, every Monday morning. You'd probably think of that as Sunday evening. Both of those should get a great signal your way. And I'll give you a a more detailed broadcast schedule uh, in writing. But if you do have a radio still you should be able to hear those two transmissions. All right, this email comes in from Leslie, and it reads, In a recent podcast, you brought up the fact 
that people living in past decades weren't necessarily all wearing modern clothing for the time period. For instance, you mentioned people in the 1920s wearing frock coats. That reminded me of some videos I watch from time to time that show upscaled and colorized early film of people from decades ago. Specifically, one of the videos shows people in Japan during the intersection of the Meiji and Taisho eras. It's interesting seeing the blend of traditional Japanese fashion and Western fashion being worn, especially in what I assume to be more urban areas. You included a link here. Uh, let's see. Views of Tokyo, Japan, 1913 uh, to 1915. Oh, yeah, these sorts of videos are, are cool. Yeah, it's like you're seeing a bit of everything here. It's that, that is fascinating. I always like that sort of stuff, too, where, indeed, you're seeing some of the traditional uh, Japanese dress, uh, while at the same time you see guys in three-piece suits with uh, the straw boater hats walking around. And, uh, yeah, that's cool. I've always thought that sort of stuff is just fascinating as well. Uh, you continue in your message. I wish we could see more variety like that in public today, both in terms of cultures and levels of formality in fashion. Personally, I normally just end up wearing some variation of black sweats or leggings and a t-shirt or hoodie when I go out, since I don't like standing out, but I like seeing variety and self-expression in the clothes of others. Unfortunately, though, I don't get to see it that often. Your YouTube channel and that of a creator named Carolina are the closest I get to seeing a break from the fashion norm. Have you seen any of her content before? No, I haven't. I've, uh, I don't really watch many people on YouTube, actually. Thanks for the recommendation, though. Carolina Zabroska. Her channel focuses primarily on historical women's fashion and historical hair care. And as a woman, I find it fascinating seeing what has and hasn't changed uh, since then about the way I get ready every morning. Anyway, that's about it. Hope you enjoy the rest of your morning, day, afternoon, evening, and or night. Regards, Leslie. So thank you for sharing that. Those videos are always cool. Yeah, you don't see all that much variety these days. You know, it's an interesting observation. I don't think... I think other people have noticed this too. But... I don't know if some people realize just the extent, anyway, uh, that the wearing of suits has actually declined substantially even since 2019, and uh, ever since COVID, how much more casual a lot of things have gotten. One thing that's actually gotten even more rare is uh, wearing a tie. Uh, it's getting rarer and rarer to see anyone even wearing 
a necktie. I remember back in 2015 walking through Manhattan and uh, seeing how many other people were wearing full suits. And uh, it was interesting to see because even at the time, and 2015 wasn't too long ago, uh, but even at that time, I remember seeing so many different styles of suits. And uh, even just walking a few blocks, I would see dozens and dozens of different types. And uh, you would see some very contemporary suits. You'd see suits from the 80s, from the 90s, from the early 2000s. You'd see people wearing a shirt and tie. You'd see double-breasted suits, three-piece suits, extreme slim-fit suits, very drapey suits, etc. And there would be so much variety. That was 2015. Nowadays, uh, granted I don't walk through New York City anymore, but I will watch some of these first-person videos, uh, and I kind of live vicariously through that. You almost never see suits anymore, or it's like in that same span where I might have seen dozens of people wearing them, now you might see one or two, and even those, very seldom do you see a tie paired. A lot of people just wear a dress shirt, uh, no tie, and maybe a jacket, maybe not. But uh, that's like the new, very formal wear. Uh, wearing ties seems to really be just going out the door. And uh, at this point, it's an extreme uh, minority that still wear them. It's not to say that people don't. Of course people still do, but... Uh, it's just gotten a whole lot more rare. So, as far as casual wear goes, maybe you'll see more variety with that. And, uh, you know, but aside from that, you're going to see less and less variety as far as any sort of introduction of more formal wear in society uh, goes. I think things are just getting more and more casual. Uh, but again, that's not going to stop me from wearing what I wear. And, uh... Yeah, it's just my observation, so thanks again for sharing that. This comes in from Josh in New Zealand. It's actually two separate emails. I took a sip of water there. Love your show, long-time listener, first-time emailer. Always listen when in the car. I think it's sad, the hate you get in the offensive emails. Keep up the good work. Question, have you ever considered traveling outside of America, specifically New Zealand? I love how your podcasts have gotten longer. So that's the first email. Thank you for your thoughts there. Ah, oh, the hate is what it is. People are how they are. They'll say what they say, and they'll feel how they feel. That's all there is to it. Uh, secondly, as far as international travel goes, it depends on the situation. Haven't traveled internationally since 2012, which is uh, when I went over to Canada. I've never really considered going to New Zealand, though I know it's, uh, at least from what I've heard, a beautiful country. But uh, I've never put any serious consideration to that. You also have a follow-up email, I think which was sent in, because this original email, I guess, slipped through the cracks, uh, 
was originally sent in uh, January of 2023. So, the second email, it reads, In New Zealand, the quality of fast food is extremely poor. I have a few theories on why this might be. Uh, the first one is that they're always so busy, the establishments, and understaffed, so quality may not be a priority. The second is that because our country is so far out, these chains are not completely up-to-date with the quality and do not care what a small country thinks. The third is everyone working there is teens who clearly don't take their job seriously. Fast food is once a lovely place to dine, and the decline in quality has impacted my mental health, and I feel I've lost one of my only joys in the world. Your podcast has given me a new sense of joy, though, but my mother doesn't approve, so I have to sneakily listen to it. Would love to hear your thoughts on the theories and what you personally believe. So thank you again, Josh from New Zealand. I don't say this as any means of... Uh, so don't take this as any sort of disrespect toward your situation, but I I have to get this out. I find it personally a bit amusing that uh, your mother takes objection <laughs> to this podcast. People, as I said, I suppose they just feel how they feel, but... Uh, I can't help but find that mildly amusing, anyway. Uh, as far as the uh, fast food situation is, though, granted, I think it's uh, due to a variety of reasons. And uh, as discussed in the last show, again, I would encourage you, if you haven't uh, checked it out already, uh, to visit the podcast platforms, and uh, if you wish discreetly, I suppose, uh, listen to that program. It's six hours long, and uh, it covers this in so much detail. You'll hear all sorts of various answers from uh, listeners all over the world, and you'll get an interesting international perspective. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of hypothesized reasons, be that uh, to various changes in culture, uh, societal degradation, corporate greed, government agendas, etc. So you'll hear all sorts of various uh, theories, but uh, for the most part, uniformly, you know, granted there are a few exceptions, uh, but for the most part, many individuals feel the same way, that there is a broad decline worldwide, even and especially in the United States. So... I don't know if it's necessarily just because New Zealand, you might think, is out of the way, uh, because here in the U.S., uh, the decline is more apparent than ever. Sorry, though, that the, the food was, uh, you know, it had a big place in your heart, and it was something that you held dear in life, and uh, then to see it decline, of course, it, I'm sure it hurts. It's like, how do you think I feel? with uh, shortwave radio. It's like, do you think I like sitting here and uh, seeing it die year after year? Of course not. I hate seeing it. So it's like, I, you know, I understand that feeling. I have to deal with that on a daily basis. 
But it's just, you know, the way that it is. There's nothing I can do about it, so I just try to enjoy what's left while there's anything left. I wish you the best, Josh. Thank you for writing in. Ruben in Los Angeles. Awesome review on the Spider-Verse burger. Really is a good limited release to promote the movie. I have a question. Not sure if you have answered it previously, but when will the next show on Spotify be? Well, whenever the uh, whenever this is out, then uh, <laughs> there's your answer. Stephen in Alaska. Always a pleasant surprise to see a new show on Spotify. Thanks for creating them. What are your thoughts on the future of the country's housing and stock market? Are we headed for an imminent crash and correction, or just a continuation of a status quo? So thank you, Stephen. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not an economist, so I can't really give any advice worth anything, but common sense to me would dictate that things should have crashed long ago, and uh, there should have been a correction years and years back, um, but that hasn't happened, and uh, I don't know. I feel like things should have crashed, and I should have come tumbling down long ago. They haven't. So that makes me think that we are no longer in a market that abides by common sense. And as a result, uh, it's just going to be an indefinite continuation of the status quo. Uh, you know, the one percenters will uh, continue to expand, and uh, the rest will, uh, will suffer and eventually will own nothing, just like they said. I just don't uh, necessarily see things changing. I think if, if, uh, if this were a normal world, uh, things already would have, but they haven't, so then why would they going forward? So I don't know, it might just be status quo. And, uh, you know, it'll just, you'll just have more and more of a divide. And that divide, specifically, will never go away, and it will only continue to expand and widen, and uh, the gap between the haves and the have-nots will only grow and grow and grow, and a day will come in your lifetime where uh, I think you'll see the the first trillionaires, and uh, everyone else will be peasants with uh, very limited leeway to do very much in uh, in this world. Jacob and Susie have some thoughts. Let me start by saying you're one of my favorite influencers of all time. Uh, thank you so much for all you do and your dedication to all of the shows and fans. Truly a stand-up guy, and I have great respect for you as a person. Congratulations on 12 fantastic, life-changing years on the air. Forgive me for my grammar. I have an 18-month-old baby boy and don't get much sleep as of late. <laughs> no worries about that interjecting, and congratulations, by the way. Continuing. My name is Jacob, and my wife, Susie, first 
revealed your content to me back in 2019, right before the pandemic changed our world forever. We've been listening and watching religiously ever since, as we sit in our balcony window of our apartment that sits in the heart of the historic town of Gettysburg. Uh, Interjecting again, I've been to Gettysburg years ago, back in uh, 2013. It was a very nice place. Uh, Continuing, in regards to your questions on the podcast, I can't speak for the earthquake experience, as I have none, although to the question of fast food prices soaring, uh, coinciding with smaller portions and poor quality, my opinion for what the future holds for these chains is this. I think, unless drastic changes are made to keep customers, I agree with you that they have changed across the board. I think we will see many of the staple chain restaurants that most of us grew up with go out of business, either that, or, I think, with the recent advancements in technology and AI, I think most will become more automated and more like a fast food vending machine rather than the traditional nostalgic restaurants we all know. People are already realizing the decline Even my wife and I consider ourselves foodies and have cooked our own meals more than ever. For instance, before the pandemic, we would eat out multiple times a week. As of late, we eat out, i.e. fast food, once a week. The two main reasons are the cost and the poor quality. What is your favorite meal of all time? This could be fast food, fine dining, home-cooked, or just your favorite type of food. Uh, So first, I would definitely say pizza. I am definitely a pizza fanatic, and uh, I would say without a doubt pizza is my favorite type of food. Uh, Pepperoni pizza, for sure. Um, But I always like pizza, pretty much any type of pizza. I would be willing to give a shot. Uh, A lot of those... Local establishments are uh, always the best, of course, you know, very fresh, uh, you know, from a local pizzeria, sometimes a hand-tossed, thin-crust pepperoni pizza. It doesn't get any better than that, but even some of the old-school Pizza Hut was pretty good. I always... Now, granted, this isn't as old-school, but I I always miss the uh, Cheesy Pites pizza from Pizza Hut. That thing was, was great. And uh, I don't know if it'll ever come back, but boy, do I I miss that pizza. And, uh, yeah, that was good. But, uh, yeah, pizza, definitely. Otherwise, some of the very nice uh, fine dining steaks, you know, some of the very high-quality filet mignon is always good as well. But uh, generally speaking, yeah, pizza, pepperoni pizza, my favorite. Number two, yes, in regards to the latter. Again, thank you for absolutely everything. Keep doing what you do and being exactly who you are. So thank you, Jacob and Susie, checking in. Some interesting points there. All right, I'm going to make the final rounds now, as far as any emails go. Uh, See if there is anything left to get to. And uh, then following that, 
that's it for the show. If I missed anything, if I happen to miss any feedback, no, it's not intentional. You are always welcome to resend an email if I didn't get to it in the program. If you do that, there is a good chance that I will get to it in the next show. Let's just take a quick look and see what there is. <laughs> this comes in from Andrew, who writes, You've talked in the past about what your McDonald's celebrity meal would be. Well, I just got an ad in an app I was using and thought you might find it interesting. Not sure if this is a nationwide promotion or a localized one or something, but I've attached a screenshot for your amusement. Love the show. And it's from McDonald's, and it says, The Stop Running on Empty deal. And, uh, I guess it has, what does that appear to be? A Big Mac, a Quarter Pounder, and some nuggets. Buy one, get one for one dollar. So, that's interesting to see. I don't think I'll, uh, I don't think that has anything to do with me, though. That's just my opinion. Because I did not create or invent the uh, phrase, running on empty. You know, it's, that phrase obviously comes from other places. Sure, it's the, the kind of little moniker that was, uh, or the little slogan, I guess is the better word, the tagline for the review. But still, that's, that is funny, though. It's amusing. Thanks, Andrew. This email comes in from an anonymous listener. I contemplated writing to you about my earthquake experience for a long time, as it brings up many different and conflicting feelings, and it isn't something I like to think about. However, after listening to your recent show... I did want to share my earthquake story with you. I am grateful that I lived to tell the tale, and I think writing down my experience could be helpful for me too. It has been helpful to listen to others through your show, so thank you. In April 2015, I was on a missions trip to Kathmandu in Nepal. I had been once before and was excited to be back. On the day of the earthquake, we were at a church singing some worship songs. Everything was completely normal. All of a sudden, the lights started to flicker, and it was as if, as if our bodies knew that something was about to happen. There were about 25 people in the church on the third floor, and everyone froze in an instant. All of a sudden, the chair I was sitting on broke, and everything started to move. No one could stand on their feet. The sound that accompanied seems impossible to explain. The most accurate description I can give is it sounded like the earth literally breaking, thick metal cracking, and the sound of screaming. I don't know how long the actual earthquake lasted. It was probably something close to 30 seconds, but it felt like 30 minutes. Every time I put my foot or hand somewhere to regain balance, the ground shifted. Once the earthquake stopped, there was a moment of total silence, 
and then the sound of buildings crashing outside. As the smell of gas was increasing, we all got out of the building and got onto the main road to get away from tall buildings. The water and food supply were almost cut off totally for weeks, so we rationed what we had. There were a tremendous amount of aftershocks, two of which had a magnitude of 6.6 and 6.7. The initial earthquake was 7.8 magnitude. During the aftershocks, buildings would crumble, electricity was completely out for days, and we weren't able to get flights out of the country until a week later. There is one last thing I would like to share. During the week after the earthquake, we went to help at an emergency housing park. Red Cross, etc. were there providing tents for families and people who had lost their homes. While I was there, there was a family who had just lost their father, who provided their only income and their house. A member of the family invited me into their tent. We sat down with her mum, her, and her two sisters, and they wanted to share food with me. They brought out a cucumber, cut it out, and we all sat there and shared that precious cucumber while we cried and laughed, all without really being able to speak with each other. I felt deeply humbled and loved by that experience. Almost 9,000 people were killed and over 20,000 were injured. A lot of families in Nepal never really got back on their feet after that earthquake. I haven't seen or heard from that family since then, yet their hospitality and kindness continues to inspire me. My apologies for the messiness and all over the placeness of my writing. So that goes out to an anonymous listener. The earthquake in Nepal, 2015, the year being... I, I remember that. Earthquakes are one of those things that if there's a major one, I've always, I've always been interested in them. And uh, I remember seeing some of the videos uh, from that earthquake. I remember there was a, a closed-circuit camera uh, from one of the streets of Kathmandu, and uh, you could just see the earth violently shaking... And uh, then you could see the dust getting coughed up in the horizon from the buildings collapsing. And uh, you could definitely see just by the way the camera was uh, violently moving about just how strong it was. And uh, your experience, I mean, it lines up with what others have said, where despite however long the actual duration of the earthquake may be, even if it's under a minute, it feels so much longer, probably the longest 30 seconds of your life. And absolutely terrifying it must have been. Uh, but you know, that story that you shared, especially about that family, you see stuff like this every, every now and then. And uh, a lot of the time, yeah, you still see it in the West occasionally, yeah, you still see it here and there in the US, but I notice you see this in other countries, uh, at least in certain countries, and uh, certain areas, anyway, uh, where you have folks who are just, you know, their level of, of, of generosity that you see, and just the uh, 
you know, the degree of goodwill that they possess is just something that is so seldom seen in this day and age uh, in contemporary society. You know, it's like you just don't... This family lost everything. You know, they, they lost everything. They're obviously hurting, yet they still invited you in. They still, you know, they, they still had that offer of, of generosity, that level of goodwill. That's just not something that you see a lot these days. Everyone is all about uh, themselves and throwing everyone under the bus and uh, screwing everyone over for personal gain. And, uh, you know, obviously, you have, if, if someone wants to be selfless, it's obviously within reason. You know, and I always believe in taking a, a rational, a measured approach, and I always advise having foresight, you know, but at the same time, you just don't really see, uh, gestures like that are just so, so rare. It's like more often the way I, I feel is like if something like that happened in the U.S., I think it would be quite the opposite. I think there would be more looting, um, you know, than anything else. People wouldn't be uh, helping each other. They'd just be taking uh, from those they feel uh, they can exploit. And, uh, you know, it's like someone would uh, steal their food at gunpoint or something. And, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's how it would be over here at this point. I mean, again, there's always exceptions. But uh, it's just, you know, generosity and all of that, it's just, uh, I, I don't think anyway it's what it used to be. But look, that's just me saying that. I could be dead wrong. Uh, but anyway, that's an interesting experience, and thank you for sharing it. Again, I remember that earthquake. Uh, I remember also at the time, there were actually a bunch of shortwave broadcasts started up to Nepal... Uh, being that there was a lot of a, you know, at least in certain areas anyway, a communications blackout. Uh, but I remember at the time, the Voice of America, the BBC World Service, and Radio Australia all started up shortwave broadcasts to Nepal. And uh, one religious station, which we actually talked about earlier in the program, TWR, also started up a Nepalese broadcast. I remember monitoring some of those uh, in the wake of the disaster, and they provided uh, interesting coverage. Uh, many of them, of course, were in Nepalese, uh, but a few of them had, at the very least, English news bulletins, uh, which provided, I feel, more extensive and accurate updates uh, than any of the media over here did. So thank you for again sharing that experience. And this final email comes in from Helen, who says, Hello, I'm a new listener. First time writing. Hope you are well. I want to add on to the impossible meat stuff you mentioned in the last podcast. As a vegetarian, I hate fake meat. I ate it when I first switched over, but as time went on, I based my diet on primarily plants. A couple months ago, my mother bought me some frozen impossible burgers trying to be nice. When I tried them, I was really grossed out. 
maybe because I haven't eaten anything meat-like in a while, but they also didn't seem like real food to me. I remember being really grossed out by the aftertaste. I finished it, but I would never go out of my way to buy it. I luckily did not have any bodily reactions. Since meat is so important culturally, I suppose I understand the desire to emulate it, but I think we should let vegetables be vegetables. They can be delicious as themselves, and fake meat is not healthy at all, as you mentioned. I've seen that discussed in vegetarian and vegan spaces, but most meat eaters seem to have a notion that they are, which sucks. I don't eat fast food much. I used to enjoy Taco Bell, but the one nearest to me repeatedly put meat in what was supposed to be vegetarian orders, interjecting no surprise there, uh, which set me off permanently. I really wish places would just make veggie burgers instead of stocking impossible burgers. There's only one I know of, P. Terry's, and they're based in Austin, Texas. If you ever visit, I'd love to see a review. Their veggie burger is rice slash mushroom slash bean based, made in house and is delicious. I imagine better for you than impossible burgers. Do you ever eat veggie burgers? I find it so odd that they're sidelined. Once I told my friends that I liked them more than impossible burgers, and they didn't even know what I was talking about. Also, I'd like to recommend you an audio show, The Magnus Archives. If you haven't listened to it already, it's horror and one of my favorites. So thank you for the suggestion. I've noted it down. And uh, it's an interesting point that you raise as far as veggie burgers go. Yeah, you don't hear them. You don't hear about them much these days, do you? You used to. You don't really hear about them anymore. It's interesting. It's an interesting observation. I've had them before. It's not something that I have a problem to. You know, generally speaking, I would have a regular burger. You know, obviously people feel how they feel about that. Uh, But it's my preference. You know, it's not something that I will force others to conform to. It's like, I'll, I'll eat what I eat. If someone wants to eat a veggie burger... Go for it. If someone wants to eat the Impossible Burgers, what do I care? You know, so it's like you you do you. But in the past, I have consumed veggie burgers occasionally. I've never had a problem with them. And if I were forced to make the choice between a veggie burger and an Impossible Burger, I would always choose the veggie burger because at least I feel way more confident that the veggie burger will not only be better for me, it will be healthier, it will likely not elicit a reaction of utter rejection physically, where my body is thinking like, what is this poison? I gotta, this is awful. You know, I don't think my body will react in that way. And secondly, It has a flavor unique to itself. It's not trying to pretend to be something that it's not. You know, so it 
to me anyway, doesn't come off as synthetic or artificial. So I would definitely choose that. Thank you for bringing that up. Interesting question. And uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts. Dear listeners, that's all for the show tonight. If you have any feedback, once again, you are welcome to reach out. V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com Thanks for listening, and until next time, be safe, be healthy, and I wish you all the very best. Have a pleasant month of June. Take care. This is V-O-R-W.